Fleshly and so forth, but... Check out BillMoreCabaret.com for upcoming show info and DJ nights. You're pretty happy with the way you look and the attitude you've got, are you? Good Wednesday afternoon, everyone. My name is Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, April 1st, 2009. Yes, it is April Fool's Day out there, people. And to celebrate, I've collected two CITR-specific April Fool's Day stories to share with you. They are awesome, so definitely stay tuned to that. They're coming right from our very own music director, Luke Meat, and Duncan McHugh from Duncan's Donuts, which airs every Thursday at noon. So definitely stay tuned for that. I'm I've got that coming up a little later on in the show. But first up today, I've got an interview with Jill Barber, the Juno-nominated songstress who first broke onto the music scene out on the east coast of Canada. She's now calling Vancouver her home, and I've got a short interview, and that's coming up first. And last on today's show... I'm going to be closing with a chat with a community planner named Mark Pickersgill. We're going to be talking a little bit about Vancouver's lack of live music venues and what you, I, and everyone out there who wants to see more live music from maybe smaller competitors here in Vancouver can do to make the scene bigger and uh, better than it already is. All right, but first let's get right to Jill Barber. Born in Port Credit, Ontario, Jill Barber launched her music career when she was living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She produced two albums there. One was, The first was called Oh My Heart, and that came out in 2004, and then For All Time came out in 2006. And both of those two albums garnered her a bunch of East Coast Music Awards. And last year, 2008, she was nominated for a Juno for Best New Artist. Last fall, Barbara released her newest album called Chances, and that features 10 tracks that are more reminiscent of Patsy Cline and uh, Edith Piaf and Etta James. Jill's self-proclaimed smoky, folky sound that she had on her first two albums is forsaken in the new album for a completely different, new and rich, fully orchestrated album. And uh, here, I've got a, a track from that new album set up here. Why don't I play? Probably the track that most of you will be familiar with is called Oh My My. It is, um, it is the second track on her album, and here's, here's a taste of that. All right, well, that's not on my mind. But this is Jill Barber here in the background here. And uh, I caught up with Jill earlier on the phone today. So here's our conversation. And uh, here's a little more Jill Barber before we get into that. Woman that I can, will you promise to be my man? Jill Barber, thank you so much first for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me on the show. No problem. Um, happy post-Juno weekend. Your brother was nominated and he was in town. What was the weekend like for you? Well, I had a chance to sort of enjoy the Junos from the sidelines, which was a good way to do it. Um, I, uh, I had a great weekend. It was a really exciting weekend here in Vancouver and uh, wonderful to have my brother in town. And so... Um, I didn't go to any, any of the award shows, but I sort of went to a couple of parties and, and 
took in some music at Juno Fest. So it was a really exciting weekend. Right. It must it must have been quite a thrill to ha- for you having been nominated for two Junos last year, having your brother nominated this year. Yeah, after absolutely. Y- Especially a thrill for my parents. Yeah. Were they yeah. in town as well? <clears throat> no, they no. They uh, they didn't come to town, but they um they feel pretty proud of them to uh, say that they can be parents of two Juno nominees. So, yes. Yeah. Juno nominees, but not Juno winners. The, the, no, uh, but you know, like like in any of these awards shows, it's the 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 winning like the winning of the award is kind of an afterthought. It's really, um, it's kind of all about I find all the opportunities you can get out of sort of just being a nominee. You mm-hmm. know, like it. it it sounds cliche, but I really think that the accomplishment is, is even being in there. Right. And I know Matt felt the same way. I think a lot of a lot of people who listen, let's say, more to the alternative side of music, um, or the people, more our listeners here on CITR, um, a lot of them don't put a lot of faith in the Junos in terms of reflecting what's new and interesting and what's really being artistic rather than record sales. And I know that the Junos have been trying to change that, but... Mm-hmm. I, one question that crossed my mind when I knew I was going to talk to you is, um, well, you were nominated as New Artist of the Year last year at the Junos, mm-hmm. and you'd already put out two albums, won quite a few ECMAs. Uh, do you think that the Junos are really reflective of what's of Canadian the mu- Canadian music scene, or is it still very much um, based on record sales? You know, I'm I'm sort of of two minds uh, when it comes to this debate i you know like i feel that the junos are certainly reflective of something i mean uh record sales does reflect something there are people out there buying nickelback records you know Mm -hmm. obviously lots of people um and i think that yeah the amount of records that an artist has sold is is some indication of of having a lot of fans you know and i think at the end of the day i think that if if an artist or a band that have fans and they have a career. And um, the great thing for me in my experience with the Junos is that uh, just being nominated kind of opened me and my music up to a whole new set mm-hmm. um, of individuals. And so, you know, I was a new artist uh, to to that audience, to that kind of slightly more mainstream audience mm-hmm. and uh so i viewed it only as a good thing like anytime anytime anyone is, is willing to sort of give me extra exposure to to a new audience then you know i'll take it and um you know i mean i don't think it's i don't think it's an accurate representation of all the amazing music that's coming out of canada but I, there are other award shows that are trying to recognize that you know polaris is right <clears throat> is trying to fill uh, fill that sort of that void, you know, right. and recognize um, artists based solely on artistic merit as opposed to, I don't know, sales figures. Right. So I, I mean, I don't know. Like I don't, I don't, <clears throat> I don't take a big issue with the Junos. I think they are what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's nice that they, that um, they are changing. I think that. Ten years ago, there wouldn't be nearly as many independent artists like myself in there. Right. Um, and so that's—I I feel they're changing for the better. Definitely. Uh, you know, I, I cringe with with the rest of them when you know when I see bands that 
you know, don't like that aren't on my radar kind of mm. clean up at the uh, at the Juno Awards. But you know, I guess they're entitled to that. And as I say, like I think record sales do count for something. There are people, lots of people, uh, that are fans. And so you know, it is what it is. To each his or her own, I guess. Exactly. Um, so. Uh, you specifically have moved to Vancouver recently, and uh, yeah. talking about fan base and talking about who is popular, I mean, it seems like um, you've definitely built up a home base in, on the East Coast, and now coming to the West Coast, were you at all nervous to, to shift your locale? Uh, you know, I, I suppose a little bit. I, I definitely felt that I, I had been sort of embraced by my adopted town of Halifax. Right, because you were born in Ontario. That's right. I'm from Toronto originally, mm-hmm. and I um, I spent some time in Kingston. I spent four years in Kingston where I was a student and before I moved out to Halifax. And, you know, before I lived in, in Halifax, I felt really at home in the Kingston musical community, and that's mm-hmm. kind of where I really started um, playing out in clubs and kind of building my, my musical career. And then when I moved out, out east, uh, that's really where I felt like, um, yeah, like I felt I was a part of a musical community, right. and that was the that was the platform that um, kind of I feel like launched me in my my national career. Like I, mm-hmm. I spent a lot over the years living in Halifax. I'd spent a lot of time on the road and touring all the way out west. So, you know, I I like to think that. Um, that uh, you know, I've I, I I am now part of the national you know cross Canada musical community, and oh, so definitely. Uh, and and these days, uh, it doesn't uh, you know for me it's kind of business as usual. I'm still mm-hmm. touring as much all over, and um, Vancouver is just kind of where I decided to to uh, hang my hat. And I suppose I was a little nervous leaving the nest, you know, yeah. if you will, the mm-hmm. Halifax. Uh, comfy uh, nest, but I think it's—I think that it's a good—it's good for creativity to shake things up every once in a while, and it was just a good personal challenge for me to to um, to take the risk of um, moving right across the country. Right. Well, I mean, earlier on the show today, I talked to um, someone about venues in Vancouver because I think that's something that someone that lots of us ran up against this weekend was long lineups to get into venues, wanting to see artists. And I think it's a, a problem sort of around Vancouver that there aren't enough sort of uh, spaces. But I'm wondering what your take is. What Have you gone out to a lot of the clubs since you've been here? And what's what's the feeling of the Vancouver scene versus, let's say, the Kingston scene or the Toronto scene or, or the Halifax scene? Well, um, I'm still very much kind of an outsider. I'm looking in on the Vancouver scene. I don't have a great handle on it just yet. Mm-hmm. I've been out to um, to a few shows. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like there's some pretty cool venues in, in Vancouver, but definitely. Maybe that's because I'm you know I'm new here and they're kind of mm-hmm. fresh to me. But um, I don't know. I've been to I like I like Richards and, and yeah. the Railway Club seems seems to have a real kind of scene and definitely. Um, the Commodore is like one of the coolest venues in all of Canada, I mm-hmm. think. But it's also a massive one, so it's kind of Right. I guess it's not it's not really a home for for local bands so not, much. Not so much. But um, then this Saturday you're playing a show at the Rio. 
Um, yeah, that's right. Are so you? I, I haven't actually, I haven't actually um, seen a show at the Rio, but I, um, yeah, it was suggested to me as as a cool venue to play. And it's so definitely I, uh, one of the one of the staples, I would say, in the Vancouver scene. Cool. And you'll be p- playing alongside David Miles. Yes. He's an East Coaster. Where did the two of you have hook up first? Uh, in in Halifax. Uh, he lives in Halifax, and that's mm-hmm. where I was living. So, yeah, we've known each other for a few years now. He's a he's a really good friend of mine, and um, so I'm very pleased to to be doing these shows with him. And mm-hmm. if you know, for your listeners that don't know his music, he's just a really fantastic your songwriter and a real entertainer like he's a great um showman and he he's a great storyteller and um he's always a lot of a lot of fun to watch play fantastic and he just won the uh, great american songwriting contest actually something about that. yeah so um it, on his blog at least it he's really excited about that and it, it sounds like it's going to be an amazing show with the two of you i, I think it should be a lot of fun mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm really looking great I'm sorry, um, my phone is beeping. <laughs> that's okay. I'm just trying to ignore that. No but, um, Sorry, yeah. No, um, I guess the last question the last question that I had for you um, was uh, regarding CBC Radio specifically, because I, I know that CBC Radio and Radio 3 uh, have been big supporters of both your music and your brother's music, and I was just wondering whether you have any feelings regarding the recent announcements of them having to cut a lot of staff. There's a, com- a bunch of face groups saying save CBC Radio 3. And I'm wondering, as as a an independent in Canada who has been really benefited, I would imagine, from things like Radio 3, w- how do you feel about the f- the uncertain future? I've, I've always been fairly outspoken about how um, I wouldn't have a career if it weren't for CBC Radio. And I really mean that. Like, they have, um, CBC Radio 1, 2 recently, and 3 have have been huge, huge supporters of mine. My first record was actually um, funded by CBC Radio Hmm. Maritime. So, you know, I've I've gotten way more than a leg up from the CBC. They've really... um, made it possible for, for me to do what I do uh, right across the country and um, not only that um, but I am a devoted loyal listener and have <laughs> listened to CBC radio all my life you mm-hmm. know and um, so you know and a lot of my friends work for CBC so I you know obviously um, feel uh, pretty terrible about the um, amount of jobs that are being cut um and you know i certainly wish that that weren't the case it's uh, it's a shame i i think that um i i think it's amazing how um listeners and the community are rallying behind cbc Mm -hmm. and them wanting to really show their support i think it's a wonderful thing i don't know if we need to I'm not sure that we need to save Radio 3. I don't think, or save CBC. I don't, saving jobs, I think, would be a more apt description, like let's try to save people's jobs. But I I think that the, um, from what I've learned about it, um, you know, 
Radio 3 is is intact and um, some change, major, major changes are being um, made to um, the radio stations mm-hmm. across the country. And I just think the greatest shame is that people are people are losing their jobs. But I, I don't think that we as Canadians um, need to save this save the CBC. <laughs> I, just, I, see, I, don't, I guess I don't like the idea that it's like a drowning or near extinct entity. I, right. I don't think it is near extinct. I, and I think, uh, you know, it will, it will um, go on. But I, I, I do wish that, um, I do wish that, uh, you know, people, all the individuals that work so hard to make it as great as it is, uh, you know, wouldn't be losing their jobs. But, um, I suppose that um, that can be said of uh, a lot of people in a lot of different in- industries that um, these days jobs are in, in you know in yep. jeopardy right now. Definitely. Well, Jill, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. Um, best of luck with the with the concert dates, the upcoming concert dates, and uh, and again, welcome to Vancouver from all of us who've been here for a while, and we oh, hope you stay you. for a long time. Thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate that. And um, I'll be tuning in uh, to the Arts Report. Wonderful. Um, and getting to know getting to know my new city a little bit better. I need to be educated in, um, in all of the amazing things that are happening in town. Lovely. I've only just begun to learn about it, so it's a wonderful thing. Well, I, we're, we're happy to open the city up to you and uh, to have you here. Great. Great. Jill Barber is playing in Vancouver this Saturday night at 7.30 p.m. at the Rio on West Broadway. And if you'd like to win a free set of tickets to that show, why don't you give me a call right now here at CITR. The number is 604-822-2487. That's 604-UBC-CITR. And I will hook you up with a set of freebies to that concert. Now here... With a very Etta James-esque track from her new album, Chances, this is Jill Barber with Never Quit Loving You. As long as this world keeps on spinning around, I'll keep hanging on to this love that I I will never 
That is Jill Barber with Never Quit Loving You from her new album, Chances. And if you want to, to win tickets to see Jill Barber live in concert, give me a call right here at CITR right now. It's 604-822-2487. Give me a call. CITR Mint Records and Shay New present Hot Panda this Saturday, April 4th at the Media Club. Come celebrate the release of Hot Panda's Mint Records debut album. Volcano Bloody Volcano, and also check out Victoria's Vincat and Fanshawe, winners of Shindig 2007. This is an early show, so come early. Doors open at 7 p.m. How long do you think it'll be before I can do the show? You're starting tonight. We'll do it live! If you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. The Biltmore Cabaret at 395 Kingsway is Vancouver's newest live showroom devoted to independent music of all genres. But a lot of these groups are nothing but pure uh, carnality and uh, fleshly and so forth. But... Check out BiltmoreCabaret.com for upcoming show info and DJ nights. You're pretty happy with the way you look and the attitude you've got, are you? I'm Peter Mansbridge, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. All right. Welcome back to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, ben just called in and won himself a couple of tickets to see Jill Barber this uh, Saturday night at the Real Theatre. Um, there's someone waiting on the line right here right now and i will get to you in a moment but first i've got one more piece of tape for you today is april 1st which means it's april fool's day now i don't want now i know i don't know about the rest of you out there but no one in my family or amongst my group of friends was ever really creative enough to pull any truly memorable april fool's day pranks but here at citr well let's just say there's no end to the number of wonderful and creative people around which means it wasn't too difficult for me to find two very funny April Fool's Day jokes to share with you today. So without further ado, here is our music coordinator Luke Meat and Duncan McHugh from Duncan's Donuts with their favorite April Fool's Day stories from the past couple years. I got it right here for you right now and here they are. Duncan, the reason I'm calling today is because uh, Word on the street is that you have an amazing April Fool's Day story to share with us. Well, I have a few. Uh, I, I don't know if there's one in particular that you're looking the one, for. The one where the guy almost left the country. Well, he, are you talking about the, the Iraq thing? Yes. Well, he didn't necessarily leave the country. Or he wasn't planning on leaving the country, but uh, he almost did there was one guy that almost went into hiding because of it. Hiding? So what happened was uh, my friend Zach 
um, is a lovely person, but he is a little prone to like conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. and he's a little gullible. And so I kind of I, I knew that I could kind of exploit this on on April 1st, where he'd be like so wrapped up in this thing that uh, he wouldn't necessarily stop to think about what was really going on. Uh, so he uh, is a filmmaker, and he and a friend uh, were raising money to provide camcorders to um, Iraqi journalists. This was in 2004 or so. Okay. So it was during the war, and and they were. It was a really like a really great, um, worthwhile project mm. um, to provide camcorders to citizens so they could document what was happening in their in in their hometowns. Um, <laughs> so knowing that he was doing fundraising for a group in Iraq. I thought that that would be uh, like a pretty easy target. Uh, so I had a friend pretend to um, be calling from the RCMP yeah. about <laughs> investigating terrorist fundraising <laughs> that he, uh, he may have been a part of. Um, the funny thing is, he, my girlfriend was his roommate at the time. And so a couple of weeks earlier, we had actually discussed, like, oh, we should do something to Zach. Oh, this would be a great uh, thing. Like, that, that would be, that's the way to do it. Right. And so um, on April 1st, I was working uh, in a grocery store at the time, and one of the other uh, produce clerks uh, put on his best RCMP voice and called up, and, and we intentionally like made it so that it was a message on the phone. Um, and uh, a little while later, like I was wondering, like, what? You know, I haven't heard anything from, from Anna. It's kind of weird that she hasn't called yet. So I called the house, and I was like, Anna, what, what's up? What's going on? She was like, you won't believe what happened to Zach. He's being investigated by the RCMP. He's running right now to go tell his friend who he thinks, like, he doesn't even know who this guy is anymore. So he's telling him to, like, stay away from the, you know, the phones and stuff. And I was just like, Anna, do you remember the conversation we had? I was like, what are you talking about? What conversation? Like, Anna, it's April 1st. Don't you remember? She was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we were going to pull that prank on Zach. So she had totally forgotten about it, and he had spent like the last, the previous hour, like running around the house, freaking out that he had been implicated in some terrorist fundraising plot. <laughs> and when when did you finally break the news to him? Uh, well, she, uh, he, when I called, he was actually just leaving, um, and so she ran out of the house to tell him, and and he kind of crumpled. I believe. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> kind of too bad. Well, no, he he was a very good sport about it. Definitely. Well, I mean, that's probably one of the best uh, April Fool's Day pranks I've ever heard. But apparently, oh, there's one that you and Luke shared. Well, well yeah. I wanna I wanna talk about this solo actually because the mics are doing something really weird right now. Okay, so um, yeah, Duncan's pranks part two is Duncan told me this story that he just told you like. Um, Almost two weeks prior to April Fool's Day last year. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, who are you going to get this year? And he's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't have anything planned or whatever. And um, <laughs> last year, um, my girlfriend and I were planning a trip to Germany for the last two weeks of April. And we'd had a plan for almost a year. And we were going to go. We were going away. And I come into work. And underneath my door is a fax from Live Nation. And Live Nation is what we get faxes from for all of our shows and stuff like that. And it says, Commodore Ballroom, April 26, an evening with Throbbing Gristle. And Throbbing Gristle are my all-time favorite band. They've never been to Canada. They just reunited after a 23-year hiatus a couple years ago. And the date was April 26, 
2008. So it was when I was in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so I just start losing my mind. Like, I'm just like, oh, my God, this is insane. And he did it properly. Like, there was this entire write-up mm-hmm. of, of what each band has done and or what the band has done and everything. Just like a typical, it was a perfect replica of a Live Nation, Live Nation press release. There was one flaw on it that I didn't notice is when they say the band name, it's a black background with white writing on it. But mm-hmm. he did it fine. And it just, it just compensated. But I'm just running around. I'm phoning everybody I know. I'm checking the website. And I'm, and I'm also, I mean, I really wanted to go to Germany, but it really put me in an absolutely awful mood. Now, our station manager at the time, Allison Benjamin, was totally in on this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, did she actually phone you, Duncan? Or, like, I, I think someone <laughs> called you and said, okay, you got to let this guy out of his misery here. because I believe, well, I tried calling you um, as soon as I saw you come online. And the yeah, phone was and, busy because you were madly calling oh, all these yeah. people to complain about it. And my status it. on MSN was like, Luke is really pissed that he's going to Germany now <laughs> because Robin Gressel are coming and stuff like and that. And I tried, uh, yeah, so I couldn't get a hold of you. And then uh, Allison actually called me and said, you're a bastard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I was, I, was, I was just being a real, real prick to everybody here. Mm-hmm. I was just in such a foul mood. And then finally Duncan calls me up and he's like, Luke, what day is it today? <laughs> and I go, it's Tuesday. You know, and he goes, what's the date and I look over, and I'm just like, oh, you son of a bitch. You know what I mean? And it was good. That was a real good one, you know. And I still have the facts, actually, like um, like um, everything. But the thing is, I had to make up about an hour's worth of work for all the calls that I made to, to call back to everybody to tell them that it wasn't happening. And the ironic thing is that Throbbing Gristle are actually touring this summer. They're playing Coachella for three so it's kind of weird but um yeah that's a, that's a decent one as well so thanks buddy yeah and, uh, you know did you and you took a hiatus this year i did yeah i i, I was gonna maybe play one on my girlfriend's mom but i just couldn't work it out oh, so i thought i'd, I'd you know uh, that one till next year then yeah we'll see nice well i from my part thanks both of you for sharing those stories i think it definitely comes from a background i think of playing pranks my family no one ever did anything on on uh, april fool's day how did you I, guys have you always played I, pranks? I played some pranks on my mom when I was young, <laughs> and they weren't welcomed <laughs> oh. i uh, you know the the kind of the sprinkler thing that sometimes people have um in their kitchen faucet where yes. there's like an additional thing and you kind of push the back and it like it it's a uh, yeah, well, I taped the back of that, so as soon as my mom came into the kitchen and turned on the faucet, oh. it's oh. face, which is funny in, like, a Three Stooges movie, but not funny when it's your mom and it's, like, she's, you know, it's the morning. Yeah. Um, so that was unwelcomed. And I, I, I had contemplated the uh, saran wrap on the toilet mm. trick, but uh, I never I never pulled that off. The only one I ever did on my mom was I, uh, just for the first thing in the morning, is she always had cereal. Uh, for breakfast is I changed the milk green like I just I just I just put food coloring in it so it was like this bright neon green it was just a big shocker like she just, you just open up your milk and just pour it on your cereal and it's like blah you know what I mean and, uh, and she didn't really get it and then she was like oh okay it's April Fool's Day and something like that I think it's a uh, the ones I remember the most in Alberta at least was the radio station pranks that they used to do the one that Red Deer did uh, is Z99 not Z95 Z99 and Red Deer they said that they were starting 
going south and north on Highway 99, which is how you got to Edmonton or Calgary from Red Deer, is they were starting up a $10 uh, um, poll, or what is it called? Um, uh, a toll? toll? Like a toll booth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people lost their freaking minds. <laughs> like, you know, it was going to be 10 bucks to go to Calgary or Edmonton either way mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that was a good one. And then the other one is that the Edmonton Oilers, and this is kind of, might be true eventually, but in 86, yeah, when the Edmonton Oilers were the ultimate hockey team, they said that they were being sold to Dallas. And that was <laughs> oh. a real big one. You know, yeah. and so, but stuff like that. I remember BCTV a couple years ago said that Manchester United were coming to play the uh, Whitecaps. That was a that was a big that was a good one, and then they they had to recant that yeah. one. But know, I'll never forget the BBC's Penguins Can Fly video from a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, I had friends emailing me that so many times, being like, "I can't believe it! I knew, always knew it." And that was a good one, I think. Yeah, and the Spaghetti Harvest. Oh, uh, definitely. By far, uh, <laughs> a classic. A classic, yeah. All right, well, thanks, both of you. Happy April Fool's Day. Okay, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Bye. Take care. That was Luke Meat and Duncan McHugh from Duncan's Donuts right here on CITR. Thanks to both of them for sharing those stories with me. Uh, yes. Um, so I've got about 20 minutes left in the show today, and I want to close off. I, I don't know about the rest of you out there, but I know... I spent a lot of time on Juno Fest weekend waiting outside of packed music clubs. Waiting. Just waiting with no avail to get inside. And the saving grace, I think, of this Juno Fest weekend was the wonderful weather because if it had been raining, I'm sure you'd have heard a lot more complaining from the crowds of people who, even though they had wristbands, were not getting into the clubs. Not just the noise, of, and you wouldn't hear any noise would be coming of complaints rather than from the never-ending street party. But seriously, even when there isn't a Juno Fest weekend, getting into a club to see live music here in Vancouver is not always an easy endeavor. There aren't a lot of smaller live music spaces around town, and those that do exist are often booked solid with already established acts. And so if you're new to the Vancouver scene, it's sometimes hard to find a place to play. The same holds true for artists and dancers. So, to put it bluntly, independent music and cultural spaces in the city are few and far between. But a lot of us want to know why that is. Mark Pickersgill is a community planner who has studied community planning and the music venue scene here in Vancouver. He wrote his thesis around musical venues in BC at UBC's Graduate School of Planning, And I caught up with Mark over the phone earlier today, and we had a really good conversation about musical venues in Vancouver and uh, why they're so few and far between. Here's our conversation. This past weekend, Vancouver hosted the Juno Awards and Juno Fest, which was a four-day live music festival. And the city was flooded with people who came from across Canada to hear live music right here in Vancouver. But many people, myself included, were left out in the cold this weekend. Fittingly, this Saturday's Globe and Mail featured an article by Fiona Morrow that talked a little bit about the lack of live music space available in Vancouver, but it didn't really explain why that problem exists. I've called up Mark Pickersgill today on the phone, uh, who is an expert in these matters, and he's going to try and help us figure this out. So first off, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, so, Mark, can you give us a sense of what the live music venue scene is like in Vancouver right now? Well, um, I think I think with the the events of the the Juno uh, celebrations this weekend, I think those 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 are really able to highlight some of the 
um, the issues and, and lack of space in particular right now in, in the city mm-hmm. for, for music, for music performance. Um, I think uh, I've lived here for a few years, and I think over the, the number of years that I've been here, I, I've definitely seen an issue with, uh, with music and performance spaces constantly, uh, constantly in flux and, and places closing down. Mm-hmm. And there, there seems to be a bit of a vacuum in the city. Things seem to be contracting, and there doesn't always seem to be a lot of expansion back out after that, that contraction happens. And I think uh, we're kind of in a, a cycle right now that is seeing that happen at an accelerated pace again. And why is that? Well, uh, exactly why is not really an easy easy thing to pin, pin down, because mm-hmm. I think there's a number of factors. Uh, a big factor is just sheer cost of, of running and operating a space and, and getting space. I mean, rents can be rather expensive, and, uh, you know, there's not a lot, of, a lot of people and groups that are able to, to own Mm-hmm. Uh, straight out own a, a venue or a piece of property to to be able to kind of do what what they will right um, and I mean the financial costs of of renovations of getting things up to code uh, of waiting for for permits for liquor licenses those types of things can be um, if you're trying to do things on a legit 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 level it can be very very detrimental mm-hmm. Um, a long time and then coming. we're talking about regulations generally, and some of the, the issues associated with with bylaws, with with zoning, with mm-hmm. with noise bylaws, with uh, liquor enforcement. Those mm-hmm. can be a re- really big hindrance as well. Right. That's. I think that specifically applies to maybe the the kind of music venues and spaces that are on the smaller end of the the spectrum. Right. Um, and we're not necessarily talking about like. GM Place or even a place like the Commodore Ballroom, which mm-hmm. um, I think a city like Vancouver can realistically only uh, and only needs to have you know, a few of those kind of landmarks, but um, kind of on, on the smaller scale, uh, those starting up their own venues and uh, even to some extent some of the, the larger bars and things like that in Vancouver um, are kind of on the edge consistently and I've, I've only been in the city for about five years and I, you know, I've seen a, a number of places closed down, um, and uh, so, why that happens? Yeah, uh, I'm specifically uh, like city bylaws or or licensing or. Well, uh, I mean, city bylaws they they do they serve a function. Uh, there's a number of different functions. The, the very basic one is, is life and safety, making sure that people are, you know, we're not going to die if they go <laughs> see a uh, see somebody <laughs> play or go to a party. Well, definitely, and, and we hope fire. not. <laughs> Sorry? We definitely hope that no one's going to die yes. <laughs> going out to see a live musical act. But and, in and Vancouver it, these days, I don't know. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and generally, I mean, the, the bylaws, the, there's a whole host of them, uh, being from noise bylaws to liquor licensing, mm. uh, building code. Um, and building code is a big one. Um, the issue when it comes to bylaws is you, you want to try to ensure, again, that you're maintaining a certain level of safety. Mm-hmm. And that I guess that's why the bylaws are in place, and then also um, able to work with the context of the community, mm-hmm. and that's another problem that occurs in Vancouver is that there's just a there's a culture of complaint in Vancouver where uh, you know any kind of disturbance, uh, minor noise or mm-hmm. disturbance uh, usually ends in a in a, a call to the cops. Up. 
it can be problematic, but mm. it, it's kind of a, a cultural thing. I'm wondering the, this originally, like way back when, the city was designed with a, a specific entertainment district in mind, and that was the the Granville sort of corridor. But it doesn't really seem like that entertainment quote unquote district is really fostering a lot of um, new acts or spaces that for smaller artists or up and coming artists. Yeah. Does that kind of city planning model still work? Uh, I don't think it works at all, actually. Mm. Um, the, 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 the logic for what happened on Granville Street uh, was kind of based on, I think, what a lot of other cities in, in North America were, were doing at the time. Mm. Um, the, the kind of famous example is Calgary and Electric Avenue. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you're yes. aware of that, but essentially that was a little uh, similar strip, a bar strip, entertainment strip that was essentially created to be the party strip for the 1988 Winter Olympics. And then after it was over, it uh, it, it turned into just a, a crazy, uh, you know, wild west, mm-hmm. a, a drunken, I don't know, <laughs> Revelry, <laughs> yeah. like every night, and they ended up shutting it down. Mm. I mean, they they took away all the liquor licenses there, and that's just kind of an example of a concentration of those those, those spaces in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, Vancouver, when they were developing Yale Town, they made a, a city planners and and people officials made a conscious effort to um, shift all of the li- the major liquor licenses, all of the liquor licenses that they could, so all the clubs and whatnot, onto Granville Street mm-hmm. to make way for this more residential community. Um, and what kind of results from that is that you, you have all of these bars put into one place, and it, it's, very, it's very much a profit-driven industry. I mean, the, these bars are open basically because they can make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, not really sure how to describe it. I'm not trying to say that it's necessarily a bad thing to try to no, um, um, to kind of uh, make a community, but uh, I think the concentration in all those uh, in that in that small space um, has kind of led to this attitude that the, the bigger scale things are a safer bet, both in terms of financial returns, mm-hmm. and I think in in their more or less their relationship with with the city, mm-hmm. kind of trusted entities, basically. Right. I I don't think anyone doubts the success of of the the clubs and the venues that are in the entertainment district. But as you said before, we are more talking about smaller places where up and coming artists or perhaps experimental artists or artists that fall outside of the big money earners and outside of the mainstream culture. There are not a lot of spaces left for them or or existing for them. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons why there is this, this kind of vacuum in Vancouver. I think when we're talking about the smaller, uh, say, even underground spaces, uh, what have you, well, I mean, one of the biggest detriments in a city like Vancouver, and I, I mean, I think a lot of other places, is that space is just really expensive, mm. and uh, there's, there's a lot of issues around affordability, ultimately, right. that I, I think lend itself to a... Um, yeah, to makes it difficult for smaller venues or for venues that aren't getting big names that can charge twenty or fifty dollars for a ticket. Yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of time, um, if we're talking about underground spaces, for example, um, they they're operating in such a way where they they more or less have to throw these these parties where say maybe there are the bands and their bands and they're selling alcohol and whatnot, and that's essentially just to pay the rent. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, that's no way really to keep kind of model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that part of the reason why um, places like the sugar refinery went out of business back in 2003? Uh, well, from what I know about the sugar refinery is that they actually had some uh, requirements. They had um, fire capacity and they had to like, upgrade their kitchen and mm-hmm. do a bunch of renovations to basically meet building code if they wanted to, um, I guess, keep their liquor license hmm. as well. And uh, there, it was just financially not not possible to do that and you know, keep it open. Right. It seems like having a license for liquor specifically, and I mean, this isn't big news to anyone who goes out to see live music, but the idea of licensing, ha- having to meet all the requirements for either a food or a liquor licensed establishment, that's posing a lot of problems for people who just want to bring live musicians out into the scene. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other, uh, like, structural barriers that keep venues from staying open, other than, uh, let's say, bylaws regarding uh, kitchens or or liquor? Well, uh, there's all kinds of of different variables that kind of play into it. Um, So just to kind of list some of them, we're talking about noise bylaws. Mm -hmm. um, And so if you have neighbors, whether they're businesses or residents that are feeling affected and they complain, then that, that's, that's obviously one level in which you have to deal with it. So um, on the, the kind of structural level of the buildings themselves, it's you know, making sure that stages are built to code and you have to have sprinklers and, and you know, adequate fire suppression anyway. Right. Uh, and bathrooms. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and structural stability in the building and, uh, and a lot of things that that are kind of more on the technical side of things. Right. Um, so what? Liquor licenses. What, what about restaurants or some like? Say I was a restaurant owner, yeah. and I wanted to invite a band in to play. Are there barriers on that front? Uh, there are barriers. That, they're kind of sometimes tricky, but essentially, if you're a restaurant and you have and you're able to have a liquor license, which I believe in Vancouver is a class two restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, don't. Don't quote me on that uh-huh. off the top of my head exactly, but there is a classification of restaurants in Vancouver, and this actually changed in I think 2005. Okay. Uh, where prior, if you had a restaurant, you weren't allowed to have more than uh, two people on a stage mm-hmm. with amplified instruments. Hmm. So basically, you could you could have like a folk singer. But <laughs> that's that's the extent of what oh. you you could have in a a restaurant. Mm-hmm. They have changed that. That you are allowed to to play music. In a, in, a, in a place, as long as you you know, have the, the accompanying liquor license and you serve food and that kind of thing, right. um, but there are going to be limitations as to when you can uh, have music until, mm-hmm. and also limitations on like dancing and that kind of thing, which is really frustrating for yeah. people who want to get out there and perhaps see more ven- see more venues and more bands performing in kits or in uh, on rather than in commercial on commercial drive and and in different pl- parts of the city where the artists are actually living rather than in s- s- sanctioned corridors or s- s- just specific bars yeah well i think that's probably one of the central arguments to all of this is that realistically uh, it, it would be great to be able to have those kinds of things all across the city mm-hmm. um, rather than barely anywhere. <laughs> yeah, so um, 
what are what are some of the things that we can do as as music listeners and as people who want to see more venues um, sprouting up around the city? What what sort of actions can we take to make this happen? Yeah, well, uh, I think fortunately, I think Vancouver's seen a lot of um, really uh, innovative entrepreneurs and, and people that really care about this kind of thing mm-hmm. um, either you know move here or have have started various ventures and it, it is pretty inspiring mm-hmm. um, to see and let's not beat around the bush but it, it takes organization and it, it takes a bit of money to basically be able to get things off the ground and and to be able to sustain them in a way that is um, it is going to create be beneficial to audiences, uh, people that are making music, to everyone, basically. Right. Um, so and I, I personally kind of feel that, from what I've seen, uh, there, there just needs to be, I think, a little bit more political awareness mm-hmm. on, on one side, and uh, also community, uh, what the artists and audiences themselves, understanding exactly how these processes work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's kind of a two two-pronged approach. One is one kind of being an organized um, activist type of um, entity, whether that they're just people that can speak to City Hall, right. um, that, that can work with the business community, that can, it can more or less have, have the power of um, well-planned, well-thought-out, and just well-articulated visions of, of what, what can happen, mm-hmm. and that can help others. And, and then on the, on the other side, it's it's kind of connected, and that's just kind of uh, education of the, the kind of citizenry in mm-hmm. Vancouver. It's frustrating to, to say go to a, a venue and have audiences, and it does it doesn't happen often because I think that for the most part, people in the community are really really respectful. But often you do see the instances where I think people and will go to a, a show at a, a space that's not necessarily uh, sanctioned or, or, or mm-hmm. legal, but you know we're trying to do their thing. Yeah. To have people disrespect that uh, by you know causing problems outside, mm-hmm. um, by basically causing problems inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that that's kind of an attitude that that really does frustrate me, and I think it does frustrate mm-hmm. a lot of people that are trying to get things off the ground. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I, I'd say it works both sides. I also think that working with, say, the, the police and having them understand exactly what, what, what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if a neighbor two blocks down that isn't really effective or affected by, by something is calling and complaining, uh, you know, how do we deal with that, that yeah. situation effectively? Um, Definitely. There has to be a lot more communication on the subject between all the people who are involved because the police get involved, the city hall should be involved, planners and the people who are are running the venues as well as the artists because we all have a stake in it. I mean, so ideally, I think I'd like to be able to see a... a, uh, And not just necessarily like an organized Facebook group or anything like that, but an actual, say, like a a commission or a, a group that is a group of people that are able to, uh, again, talk to City Hall and to, to have a bit of um, a bit of a voice behind them. Mm-hmm. And it, it's sometimes like herding cats. It absolutely <laughs> is not an easy thing to do. But uh, even even if just for a short time to, to 
really educate people in the community and, and kind of make them, to build their capacity to, to do a lot of these things. Definitely. Um, and I think there are people out there that are willing to do that. As I know, a lot of musicians and artists themselves don't always have a lot of time to be able to do that, and they, they really just kind of want to do their thing. Right. I think that having articles in the Globe and Mail like there was this weekend and then people standing outside so many JunoFest venues this weekend really does bring it on the radar. And I know that Gregor Robertson, in his campaign at least, said that he was sympathetic to artists and the lack of space available. So let's let's hope that we do see some change in the near future. Yeah, no, I think that uh, you're, you're very right. And I think the, the current council is, is quite supportive of, of, of that notion and as good and, and as bad as it was, uh, I think that like, the Juno situation and the Globe and Mail article definitely kind of brought some light onto the situation. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that we'll start to see some change sometime yeah. soon. But, um, I think you do also. Uh, I, I would also say I think that there is definitely a segment of the, the population that doesn't necessarily even know that, there's a, there, that there is necessarily a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are those people who will go out to see live music, and then there are those who yeah. aren't necessarily interested in that front. And I guess, and, and I think that the Juno events, with yeah, a lot of people having to stand outside, and um, uh, maybe a lot more than usual, just to realize, well, you know, why why aren't these things spread out through <laughs> mm-hmm. through Vancouver? Oh, can I throw another thing out there too? Of course. I think another great thing would be to. Um, uh, I don't know if we necessarily have the capacity about this, and I've actually spoke to a number of people and promoters and things like that in, in the city over the, the past little while, um, is to be basically to have a, um, a festival, I think something on, on par with what's happening right now in, in Calgary with the Sled Island Festival. Mm. Um, not quite on the scale of something like South by Southwest, but essentially a, a music festival that would be able to not only just highlight music, but also the, the, the spaces in the city and mm. um, and bring more attention. I guess the city itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely think that there should be more. I mean, we have lots of festivals during the summer that are outside of the city. Yeah. But I think bringing some into the city would really highlight the need for spaces and get people more acquainted with the spaces that are available that are great to attend yeah, and absolutely. just encourage more spaces to be opening up. So that, that, would, be, that would be a really interesting challenge. And I, I'd like to, to see if a bunch of brains can get together to see if we could organize uh, something on, on, on that level, I think that would be a, a really interesting way to start that, that process. Definitely. Well, there the call is out now. Let's yeah. hope that a whole bunch of people will be flooding your email box um, with, with suggestions or times to meet, and hopefully we can get something going. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no, no problem. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Mark Pickersgill, a community planner who works right here in Vancouver. And if you want to find out more about this topic, Mark and the Vancouver journalist uh, and podcaster Sarah Buchanan published an article in Replace magazine that was in May 2008 called In Search of a Cultural Wonderland, Vancouver's Venue Dilemma. 
The article outlines some of the problems of Vancouver's live music venue scene and uh, includes a wish list of nine programs, policy changes, and civic mind shifts that could help solve the venue dilemma. So uh, that article is available online, so I'd encourage all of you to check it out. Again, it's in Replace magazine, and that's Mark Pickersgill and Sarah Buchanan. And, well... That's it for me today here on the uh, the Arts Report. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. As per usual, there will not be a regular Arts Report next week on CITR because it is the AMS block party. That means CITR is going to be broadcasting live from the backfield right outside of the bus loop. There are a number of bands who are going to be playing. We're going to have some uh, interviews with The Roots. And I'm personally going to be interviewing the the band you hear in the background there. That's uh, Tokyo Police Club. So um, tune in next next Wednesday for an afternoon full of uh, shenanigans and revel rousing now that the uh, term is coming to a close. If you want more arts news, tune in on Friday to News 101. I'll give you a weekend arts update between 5 and 6 p.m. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can always email me. I am available at arts at citr.ca. Up next, you've got audio text with Julie Peters, and I'm leaving you with this copy of Tessellate by Tokyo Police Club. It's not the traditional version, but it's one that I like quite a bit more. I hope you have a great week. I hope the sun comes back and I'll see you this time next week. Have a good one. Dead lovers salivate Broken hearts tessellate And all Kids who cut their knees on that old schoolyard fence We're holding out for posterity and self-defense We beat them down again There's no fun in playing Cowboys will pretend We show them what the backs of our hands are for. The divide is clear in the coming year. The rich will take the poor. Dire times call for dire faces. It's a lovely dancer call and dancer trade our places. In the night we're running barefoot, you and I. Broken hearts tessellate. Yeah, this is Mickey Fitz from the business. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. Keep the faith. CITR Mint Records and 